This is a Rooster Teeth production. April 28, 1988. Aloha Airlines Flight 243, a 19-year-old Boeing 737, is at a cruising altitude of 24,000 feet. The plane has already flown from Honolulu, Hilo, Maui, and Kauai on this particular day. First Officer Madeline Tompkins is flying the plane when the pilots hear a loud clap than the sound of wind behind them. Captain Robert Schortenheimer turns around to see the source of the sound and finds the cockpit door missing and notices that he can see blue sky where the ceiling had once been. The pilots immediately declare an emergency, don their oxygen masks, and begin trying to land a plane that has lost its ceiling. Are they able to land the plane successfully? What is the fate of the 95 people on board? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. We're back with your favorite podcast in the world that I know you've told everyone about, but you're still going to find, you're going to meet new people and make new friends and you're going to tell them about our podcast. Isn't that right, Chris? Uh, exactly. Yeah. This is motivation to make friends, just to spread the word. From a socially distanced, responsible, six feet away, you could be like, have you listened to Black Box Down? You should. <laughs> uh, <laughs> By uh, the way, can... nice to meet you, stranger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you can also encourage them to follow us on social media like you do on Twitter and Instagram at BlackBoxDownPod. Uh, hopefully uh, they will find the podcast as enthralling as you do. So today we're talking about an, an interesting one. There, I uh-huh. say that every time. An interesting one, an unusual one. How many, I, I probably say that in every episode. We're talking about Aloha Airlines Flight 243. And a ceiling popped off? Yeah, it's a plane that while at cruising altitude lost its ceiling. It's not something you want to see. I can't imagine being the pilot or being someone on this plane who's like, wow, that was a weird noise. What just happened? And looking up and seeing the sky. Huh. Oh, wait, I guess they installed a, one of those, uh, uh, what do you call them? Like a sunroof? A sunroof. They installed a sunroof. <laughs> the, the pilot's like, oops, did I hit the sunroof button? Uh, n- no, no, the, no. The, it got ripped off. I like Jesus. to think of, uh, well, oh God, it's, this is going to date me. It's going to let our listeners know how old I am. But it used to be that like when you would get a canned soda, you would have to rip off the pull tab on the top in order to drink it. And that's how I imagine uh, it happened with this plane. Why would you have to rip off the... Now you just kind of like pivot it and it snaps Uh down. Before you'd have have to actually have to like pull it all the way off of the pull tab. Uh, Why? That's just the way they were. I don't know. People hadn't thought to do it the way it is now. Have you really... Am I really that much older than you, Chris? Yeah, I guess so. Because I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Look it up real fast. Look up like aluminum can pull tab. You'll see what I'm talking about. Like that's the way that, uh, that's the way you used to have to open aluminum cans. Oh God, I'm really old, aren't I? This is, I I'm having an existential crisis here. Huh? You see it? Yeah. And then people would just throw those on the ground. Oh. Yeah, it was terrible. Anyway, okay. Aloha Airlines flight 243. It was a passenger flight from Hilo to Honolulu on April 28th, 1988. And like I mentioned, the flight was crewed by Captain Robert Schortenheimer, who was 44 years old, and he had 8,500 flight hours. And he'd been with the airline for almost 11 years. And the first officer was Madeline Tompkins, who was 36 years old and had 8,000 flight hours and been with the airline for almost nine years. And like I said, the plane was a Boeing 737, a very popular plane, very prolific. And it was built in 1969. Slightly old plane, 19 years old. Uh, it was yeah. built in 1969, and this incident happened in 1988. So this particular flight departed at 1.25 p.m. Hawaii time, but the plane was used for several flights earlier that day. Uh, at 5 in the morning, a first officer for Aloha Airlines began the pre-flight inspection and checklist for the plane. Captain Schortenheimer arrived shortly after the first officer did, and they flew three round-trip flights from Honolulu to Hilo, Maui, and Kauai, 
And all these flights went by uneventfully, and the plane performed exactly as they expected. I have a question. Uh, the the pre-flight kind of checklist um, inspection, mm-hmm. is it more thorough the first flight of the day, or is it the same yes. after every... Okay. That's an excellent point. So in that first flight of the day, they went out and they did uh, external visual inspections of the plane, but they were not required to do that in between each of the subsequent flights. Okay. So, uh, you know, they're being more thorough with the first flight as far as like visual inspections go. That's a good question, Chris. I, I was going to segue into that later. And you, went, <laughs> you, you, you cut right to it. You knew where we were going. <laughs> so at 11 a.m., the first officer switched out and that's when uh, Tompkins came on to the flight and they flew from Honolulu to Maui, then Maui to Hilo again and again. Plane performed exactly as expected. Hmm. At 1.25 p.m., Flight 243 departed from Hilo, bound for Honolulu with three flight attendants, 89 passengers, and an FAA air traffic controller who was observing in the cockpit. After takeoff, the plane started climbing to flight level 240. First Officer Tompkins was the one flying while uh, Schortenheimer was performing other duties, and nothing unusual happened during the departure and climb. Uh, But as the plane leveled out at 24,000 feet, both pilots heard a loud clap or whooshing sound followed by the sound of wind behind them. Tompkins' head was jerked backwards and pieces of debris started flying around the cockpit. The captain turned around and found that the door to the cockpit was missing. He could see blue sky where the first class ceiling had been. And the first class section of the plane had just burst open and uh, that part of the ceiling was gone. So not the entire ceiling for the plane, but a big portion of it. A big hole. Yeah. The first class, I mean, that's like, like what, 20 feet of... 30 feet of... uh, Your your estimate's actually pretty close. It was about uh, just under 20 feet. It was about 18 and a half feet of uh, ceiling that we're missing at this point. God, I'm afraid that... Was anyone sucked out? Uh, Yes. Uh, We'll detail that in just a bit. But it was uh, one of the flight attendants who was standing at the time uh, got uh, got sucked out. Uh, Oh, my God. We'll detail what happens to everyone here. You're you're, you're spoiling the ending, Chris. I'm sorry. Uh, So um, Captain Schortenheimer immediately took control of the plane. And both pilots and the observer in the cockpit put on their oxygen masks. And, you know, they began an emergency descent. Because, again, they're at 24,000 feet. Mm Mm-hmm. How far into the flight were they? They had just reached cruising altitude. Okay. But these these flights aren't very long. You know, they're flying island to island. Uh-huh. That's why their cruising altitude was 24,000 feet, which is, okay. you know, lower than yeah. you would normally expect. That's like, for us, you know, we live in Austin, Texas, flying to Houston or to Dallas. That's about where the, the level you fly to. You know, it's okay. only like a 40-minute flight, 45-minute flight. I don't know how long this flight was, but it's probably something comparable. Okay. So, um... The captain extended the speed brakes and descended at an indicated airspeed of about 280 to 290 knots. And the rate of descent at one point was 4,100 feet per minute, which is really fast. Typical descent rate for a Boeing 737 is between uh, 1,500 and 2,000 feet a minute. So, you know, he was going double, almost triple the normal uh, descent speed, just trying to get down. Uh-huh. First Officer Tompkins set their transponder code to 7700. And this is the code used when a plane has an emergency and indicates as an emergency on the air traffic control radar. We've talked about transponders before. You know, it's transmitting data and position info. She also attempted to notify Honolulu Control Center they were diverting to Maui, but because of all the wind noise in the cockpit, she could not hear any radio transmissions and was unsure if her message was heard. Uh, Similar to uh, the uh, previous episode we had where the windscreen failed and the pilot got sucked out and they couldn't mm-hmm. communicate because the wind noise was so loud. Yeah. Uh, and, and air traffic control did not end up hearing her message, but the controller working noticed their emergency transponder code when the plane was about 23 nautical miles southeast of the Kahului airport on Maui. He then attempted to communicate with the aircraft several times, but was unsuccessful. At 1.48 p.m., the plane descended through 14,000 feet and First Officer Tompkins switched over to the Maui tower frequency. She informed the tower of their rapid decompression declared an emergency, and requested emergency equipment. 
Maui Tower was able to hear this and they started making preparations for their landing. And about 30 seconds later, Honolulu Center Control called Maui Approach and told them they had seen this plane, had an emergency code and advised that they might be on their way. At 1.53 p.m., the first officer informed Maui Air Traffic Control that they could not communicate with the flight attendants and they would need assistance for the passengers when they landed. Yeah, I'm sure you can probably guess they couldn't communicate, not only because of the wind noise and everything, but mm -hmm. ostensibly a lot of the communications gear was ripped out as well when the ceiling was gone. Oh, really? Like the... Well, imagine there's got to be wires and... Okay, that makes sense. I would like say, that. yeah, yeah. Uh, plus also, I'm sure with the wind blowing and the cockpit missing, flight attendants were probably strapped down or probably not... If Even if the phone was working, which I don't know if it was or not, they wouldn't mm -hmm. get up to answer it at this point. Yeah, no one could get up, I guess. I mean, you, Right. Uh, air traffic control had notified rescue vehicles at the airport of the emergency, and they were lined up by the runway waiting for the plane, but they didn't find it necessary to call for ambulances based on their own understanding of the nature of the emergency. They didn't have their own ambulances at the airport, and if they needed them, they had to call 911 for local ambulances, but because they weren't quite sure what was going on, they opted not to. Mm. Uh, at this point, the flight descends through 10,000 feet, and the captain slows the plane down in order to comply with uh, air traffic control speed limitations because when a plane's below 10,000 feet, you cannot fly faster than 250 knots. Okay. Is the plane flying okay at this point? I mean, is, is it difficult to control? Uh, I mean, they're controlling it. It's not operating the way that they would expect it to, mm -hmm. but uh, he's very gingerly flying the plane. You know, with damage like this, you don't want to uh, stress the plane too much. So you're going to be real, very deliberate and slow with your actions. You know, you're not going to do yeah. a, a quick bank. You're not going to try to do anything that might further destabilize the plane. So trying to take it as cautiously as possible every step of the way. Yeah, I guess also just the, the wind sucking in all that air and then like... It's like creating more drag. Yeah, yeah. And, and also pushing the making the hole even bigger possibly because it's like ripping the ceiling off more. Right, you, you definitely have to worry about all of those things because... Yeah. Obviously, it's not intended to do this. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you, you, I'm sure, and I'm sure in no simulation do you ever fly, hey, what if part of your plane rips off? Yeah, yeah. We, we recently have been doing um, some recreations of some of uh, the crashes in our video series for Rooster Teeth First Members called, uh, um, are, we, are, we, are we using the name? Yeah, crash well, Simulator? You, yeah, you named it Crash Simulator. <laughs> um, but... In the simulation that we, a lot of times Microsoft uh, Flight Simulator doesn't, it's like, oh, you can't do this because you can't recreate this incident exactly because it just doesn't work. There's right. no way like, to simulate it. You can't simulate not having a vertical stabilizer because you shouldn't be able to fly that way in the case of Japan 1, 2, 3. Yeah. And in this case, the simulator's not going to let you fly with no ceiling. You know, you can't remove, <laughs> you know, 18 and a half feet of ceiling to try to fly a plane because these are things that are, that don't happen. It shouldn't happen, yeah. you know. It just goes to show, like, the capability of the crews that handle these situations. You know, mm -hmm. even with the stress, like, you know, we, we mess around and we play in Flight Simulator and it's like, whatever, you can laugh about it and you can joke. But these are people who are, you know, putting their skills to the test, not only to save their lives, but to save the lives of everyone else on the plane with them. I know. You know, sometimes it works. And, you know, we, we were amazed at uh, pilots who were able to do that. Like, I think about the Gimli glider. You know, pilots who were able to land a plane with no fuel from cruising yeah, altitude. which we tried to do. <laughs> yeah, we got close. Spoiler. And <laughs> which is bizarre because I'm not a pilot. And uh, in this case, you know, the pilot's flying with part of the plane missing. So, you know, at this point, crossing 10,000 feet, slowing down to try to comply with um, the limitations of speed they're supposed to respect. So he retracted the speed brakes. Uh, he removed his oxygen mask and started making a slow turn to line up with runway two at Kahului Airport. Like I said, got to keep everything really slow and deliberate. 
Uh, when the plane slowed down to 210 knots, the captain ordered the first officer to set the flaps. First, the flaps were set to flaps one, then to flaps five. When the flaps were set past flaps five, the plane actually became less controllable. So they kept the plane uh, at flaps five for the remainder of the flight. Hmm. Captain Schortenheimer also found that when the plane slowed down below 170 knots, it became harder to control as well. So he kept the plane at 170 knots for the approach and landing. Uh, typical approach speed for a 737 is about 140 knots. So they don't have as much flaps as they normally do. And they're coming a, a little faster than they normally do. Yeah, I guess it's because the, the wind would just... Maybe it was going when it was going faster. It would like not get sucked into the hole. I, I I don't even know, man. I can't even speculate on as to what's happening at this point. Yeah. Um. So first officer Tompkins lowered the landing gear at the point they normally would in their approach, and the main gear indicated down and locked. However, the nose gear did not. And we've talked about this before. You know, when they um, release the landing gear, there's indicators in the cockpit to let them know that the gear is locked in, into place. Like it's not just down; it's also firmly locked. So mm-hmm. they know that their main gear is down and locked, but they don't know if their nose gear is, is actually locked. Mm. So they tried to manually lock it into place using a handle in the cockpit. But again, the light still did not illuminate, indicating that it was locked. It's just, I guess we don't know. It, there's, I mean, there's a whole nother episode where we detailed a plane that circled and ran out of fuel trying to figure out if their landing gear was on based off the light. Right. And in this particular incident, now that we're talking about Aloha Airlines, they did not attempt to use the nose gear down lock viewer because the center jump seat was occupied and the captain believed it was more important to try to land the plane than to try to deal with the nose gear. So, you know, prioritizing mm-hmm. yeah. what their problems are. It might be a bumpier landing but, or crash, but they would at least land. Like they could, they, the plane could fall apart if they tried to circle the runway. Right. I think, you know, at this point, he's focused on landing the plane. He's like, yeah. if they get distracted trying to deal with the nose gear, they may end up losing control of the plane. So it's like, let's just focus on the plane. If the nose gear collapses, that's bad, but at least we'll be on the ground, you know? Mm-hmm. So at 155, the first officer advised the tower they would not have a nose gear and said, we'll need all the equipment you've got. While on approach, the captain started uh, advancing the power levers to help keep them on the path but he noticed a yawing motion to the aircraft and found the number one engine had failed. Oh, no. He then switched the number one engine start switch to the flight position in an attempt to restart it, but there was no response. And at this point, they're now four miles out on final approach, and the captain said the plane started to shake and rock, but they managed to land on runway uh, oh two at Kahului Airport at 158. Uh, the plane actually had a normal touchdown and rollout, and the number two engine reverse thrust was used to help slow the plane. Uh, The flaps were then set to 40 degrees as required for an evacuation, and the passengers were evacuated onto the runway. So, and there's no issues, no one was injured in the landing? So, man, Chris, if I didn't know any better, I'd swear (laughs) you had my notes in front of you, because that's literally the next thing I was going to talk about. So, like I said, there were 95 people on this flight, 57 sustained minor injuries, and 8 had serious injuries. Um, Mm. And of the three flight attendants, one who was standing near row 15 was thrown to the floor and had some minor bruising. Uh, a flight attendant standing by row two was struck in the head by debris and thrown to the floor, and she suffered a concussion and had severe head lacerations. Oh. There was a third flight attendant who was standing at row five, and according to a passenger observation, she was swept out of the plane through a hole in the left side of the fuselage. Her name was uh, Clarabelle C.B. Lansing. She was 58 years old, and she'd been a flight attendant for 37 years. Oh, my God. Uh, so a very experienced flight attendant and uh, sucked out of the plane. And, uh, you know, sadly, her body was never found. You know, they were at cruising altitude over the ocean. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that, she was the only uh, fatality, which is a miracle Amazing. considering what happened uh, to this plane. I, I guess because it was such a short flight, a lot of times they don't ever take off the seat belts 
and or there was less reason for people to get up and go to the bathroom. And right. So, I mean, that's lucky. It, it, like, you know, I, I, like I talked about earlier, we're in Austin. Flight, taking those short flights to Houston and Dallas, you know, you the, the seatbelt sign might be off at most for five minutes. Yeah. So maybe they were at the point where they had just reached cruising altitude. Everyone still had their seatbelt on. Luckily, everyone was respecting the sign and actually had their seatbelt on. Yeah. Uh, this is why, I mean, not this specifically, but if you're ever on a plane, you always want to have your seatbelt on. You never know when there's going to be turbulence or something's going to happen. It doesn't hurt anything. Just keep it on. Yeah. I never thought about that. Just unless you have a reason not to just keep it on. Yeah. Just always have it on. There's, I mean, it's, it's, there's no problem with keeping it on. Have you seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix yet? In the documentary, tech insiders explain how social media is engineered to exploit users' data for profit. They call it surveillance capitalism. I know we're all familiar with normal capitalism where we're willing participants in the transaction, you know, like every time I go to the store to buy food. But when my data is being harvested so tech billionaires can get even richer, that's where I draw the line. And that's why I put a layer of protection around my data with ExpressVPN. Every time you use the internet, big tech companies mine your data by tracking your searches, messages, and video history. But when you run ExpressVPN on your device, it hides your IP address, which websites can use to potentially personally identify you. Uh, that makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. You still need to be careful what you share on social media, but ExpressVPN can make your web browsing more anonymous. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and prying eyes. Many VPNs slow down your internet, but not ExpressVPN. It's incredibly fast and easy to use. Just tap one button and you're protected. So if you don't like the idea of tech companies exploiting your personal information, visit expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown right now. You get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to protect your data. Go to expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown to learn more. We've got a different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. And I know every day somebody tells you you just have to listen to some podcast. You nod, you say, sure, then you never listen to it. Don't let that happen here. Jordan Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guests, and uh, I mean, there's something for everyone here. I really mean it. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which is both useful and disturbing at the same time. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. Uh, there's an episode with Billy McFarland. You may know him as uh, the organizer of the Fire Festival. Uh, there's one with Oliver Stone, very acclaimed uh, director. I've uh, been working, made many great films in uh, Hollywood. Uh, Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. And we're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. Uh, if that's not worth checking out, I don't know what is. So we really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. Uh, you can search for it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, check it out. So at the time of this incident, Maui had no plans for an emergency like this. I mean, it's difficult to plan for an emergency like this, right? Mm -hmm. And there were only two ambulances on the whole island. Whoa. Air traffic control radioed a local tour company called Akamai Tours and requested as many of their 15 passenger vans as they could spare. And the injured were taken to the hospital in these tour vans. Oh my God. And they were driven by office personnel and mechanics. But in a stroke of luck, two of the Akamai drivers happened to be former paramedics. Uh, so they were able to set up a triage on the runway. Oh my God. Uh, and the first class section of the plane pretty much had its entire sides and ceiling missing. 
and the damage was determined to be beyond repair, and the plane was dismantled on site and sold for parts and scrap. Uh, this is the point in the podcast where I should mention you should follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at BlackBoxDownPod. We'll post photos of the plane and the damage so you can see uh, exactly what it looked like and what they were dealing with. It's really shocking to see uh, and to think that there were only, for the most part, minor injuries and one fatality. It's incredible what the crew was able to do uh, with mm-hmm. this flight. So, I mean, of course, the big question, right? What happened? Why did the plane lose 18 and a half feet of ceiling? You know, this flight was in the United States, so the NTSB carries out the investigation. And uh, when you know, they look at the plane, some floor beams on the left side of the plane had been broken. And there was minor damage done to the leading edges of both wings, uh, ostensibly from debris coming out and hitting them, right? Mm-hmm. And the horizontal and vertical stabilizers also had dents in them. And the inlet cowls of both engines were dented, and several of the first stage fan blades were damaged. Remnants of the fuselage were found against the inlet guide vanes and embedded in the acoustic liner of the right engine. Some cables for the left engine were broken near the leading edge of the left wing, and the NTSB found signs of corrosion on them. So basically, you can summarize this as like that part of the plane, you know, got ripped off, and then Mm -hmm. all of that debris hit everywhere along the plane and damaged it, uh, including the engines. So the NTSB also found indications of pre-existing cracks on some joints that connected the upper fuselage crown that separated. Uh, And in fact... A passenger, when boarding the plane at Hilo, noticed a, a crack in the fuselage when they were getting on the plane. What? Yeah, that crack was in the upper row of rivets, about halfway between the cabin door and the edge of the jet bridge hood. Uh, but she didn't mention it to anyone. And I mean, it, it's kind of crazy. You you think you would mention it, but I feel like if I, you know, I obviously looked into uh, airplane incidents a lot. I feel like if I was getting onto a plane and I saw a crack in the fuselage... I might not even say anything. I'd be like, I'm sure someone saw that and it's okay. Like, It's a weird thing. Yeah, you don't want to be like a backseat driver type thing where you're like, uh, sorry, did you see the crack? You know, and they're like, yes, we saw it. It's fine. You know, like. Right. So I can, I, I can understand why she didn't say anything. But in retrospect, in hindsight, you're like, why didn't this person say something? <laughs> yeah. So when the upper fuselage separated, damage was done to overhead wires. A number of circuit breakers were tripped. The passenger oxygen manifold was severed, and this prevented the use of passenger oxygen system. So they they didn't have any oxygen during the whole thing? Correct. Man, I guess they weren't that high up. Right, and and like I said, the pilot did descend very quickly. Okay. Oh, and also to answer your earlier question, the light bulb in the nose landing gear indicator had burned out. That's it? Yeah. (laughs) So So it was already out? Yeah, I guess it, I don't know if it was already out or it burned out at this time. But uh, it was, bur- they found it to be burned out. And that's why the indicator did not go off. Which is also similar to our earlier episode where the pilots became fixated on a burned out light bulb. Yeah. So the 737 fuselage is divided into four sections. The second section is labeled section 43. And this forms the forward cabin area where the separation occurred. The sections are constructed of circumferential frames and longitudinal stringers that are covered by formed aluminum skin panels that are riveted to underlying structures. So it's like round frames and long stringers covered by aluminum. Okay. Each skin panel in this section is the length of the entire section, which is 18 feet. So when it failed, that's why that entire section was missing. Uh, The adjacent skin panels are joined by overlapping the edge of the upper panel about three inches over the edge of the lower panel and are fastened with three rows of rivets and a bonding process. That sounds similar to the kind of repair they did on Japan, or they were supposed to do on Japan 123, where you overlap panels and then join them with rivets. Uh Uh-huh. So that's why only 18 feet peeled off and not the entire thing because it's separated into sections that overlap to ensure, I guess, if one part fails, not the whole thing fails. Yeah, well, that's good. I mean, just the one, just the one part of the ceiling fell off. It, it definitely could have been worse. 
So four of Aloha Airlines 737s were considered high in time, in excess of 60,000 cycles. And one of them had the most number of cycles in the entire world for a Boeing 737. And due to the short distance between destinations on some of the airline routes, the number of cycles were abnormally high for these planes. And the plane in this incident had the second highest number of cycles in the world. Whoa. So even though they hadn't flown long distances or a long amount of time, they had been through a ton of cycles, which we've talked about before. A cycle is the entire process of the flight, like being on the ground, pressurizing, taking off, being at altitude, coming back down and depressurizing. You know, that whole process puts stress on the plane. Yeah. And I mean, even to, I guess to put it in car thinking, like you're, you get a lot more wear and tear on your car driving through a city where you're starting and stopping and starting and stopping rather than like just being on the highway just, you know, going straight. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah I, could, I, I could see that. I think that's a good analogy. So the NTSB cited a previous Republic of China accident where a 737 broke apart in flight. The cause for that accident was extensive corrosion damage that caused undetected cracks that led to rapid decompression. After the accident, the NTSB conducted visual inspections of the exterior of the airplanes in the Aloha Airlines 737 fleet and found considerable evidence of corrosion on the fuselage of the airplanes. Of all of them? On a lot of them. Uh, they found swelling and bulging of the skin of the planes, damaged fastener heads, pulled and popped rivets, and worn away paint. All these conditions were found at many sites along the lap joints on almost every plane. So not every plane, but almost every plane. But only in this airline? Or was it, did they not inspect the other airlines? I think they were inspecting Aloha Airlines simply because, like what we mentioned, their yeah. planes go through a lot of cycles. And, you know, they had the number one and number two most cycles of any 737 uh, in the world at the time. So yeah. it's like they, you know, obviously they need to inspect these planes because they've been through so many cycles. Yeah. Aloha Airlines did not provide evidence that it had a specific severe operating environment corrosion detection and corrosion control program that used techniques outlined in the Boeing Commercial Jet Corrosion Prevention Manual. The Boeing Manual requires extensive application of water displacing corrosion inhibiting compounds, uh, reapplication at fastener locations and panel edges of the exterior fuselage skin every six months internal treatment at two-year intervals, washing the aircraft every 15 days, and regular buffing and brightening of unpainted areas. So Boeing actually had, I mean, you can see here, they have a manual on how to prevent corrosion and things that uh -huh. need to be done. It just happened Aloha Airlines wasn't adhering to those uh, things. Oh. It's crazy to think that the manual even outlines washing the plane every 15 days. The entire outside... You have you washed your car in the last 15 days, Chris? No, I'd never washed my car. <laughs> well, see, you, you, you would be in violation. <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't make my roof fall off. <laughs> I, don't think you're, I don't think the roof of your car is going to come off. So Aloha Airlines inspectors and quality control personnel stated that the corrosion was corrected when detected during normal inspection and maintenance activities as part of their normal tasks. So Aloha Airlines is just saying, they didn't necessarily do all these special things that they needed to do, but they, they would check on it during their normal uh, inspections. Also, during pre-flight inspection, a visual inspection of the exterior is required. And the first first officer that morning carried out those inspections and didn't find anything wrong. However, the report notes that the visual inspection of the exterior of the plane is not required between flights. So it's possible this particular crack that the passenger saw formed throughout the day or was missed by that first officer and maintenance mm -hmm. personnel. It was also found that the lap joints disbonded as a result of a manufacturing problem, and that was addressed by Boeing. But the implications of this were not realized, and a permanent solution was not determined. How big of a crack was that? The the lady who saw it? Did she, I mean, did she say how big it was? Like, So I don't know exactly how long it was. And uh, I'll read you the exact excerpt from the NTSB report uh, about okay. it. So the passenger's name uh, was a woman named Gail Yamamoto. And it says here, 
After the accident, a passenger stated that as she was boarding the airplane through the jet bridge at Hilo, she observed a longitudinal fuselage crack. The crack was in the upper row of rivets along the S-10L lap joint, about halfway between the cabin door and the edge of the jet bridge hood. She made no mention of the observation to the airline ground personnel or flight crew. So it doesn't say how big it was. They just kind of try to put a location on it. So hmm. I can't I can't say for certain. It's big enough for a random passenger, I guess, to notice it, though. Right, yeah. So I mean, it, so it had to have been yeah. sizable if a passenger getting on the plane noticed it. Yeah, because how often do you look at the exterior of a plane? I guess in Hawaii, you do board through stairs directly into the plane, so you're not... Well, I believe from this location that they're mentioning, they say that it was, you know, inside the jet bridge hood. So she was on a jet bridge, like boarding like how okay. you would expect to board, but she was still able to see that crack. So, yeah, it must have been big then. Yeah, and I mean, I'll admit, I don't know about you, I look at the exterior of the plane that I can see when I get on it. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know why. I, was, I, just, I do well, look at it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not looking for cracks or anything, but I do look at it. <laughs> So as a result of this, corrective action was uh, relegated to repetitive visual inspection and damage repair. So, you know, they just realized that they they need to inspect it more often. And if they find any minor damage, you know, take care of it immediately. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to read a few a uh, few more findings from the NTSB here. Um, got, a, got a few of them here in front of me. So remember how I said the left engine became uh, inoperative? They say that that engine became inoperative because the engine control cable separated due to an increase in cable tension caused by the cabin floor deformation and corrosion found in the area of cable separation. So they lost control because the cables that control it just failed. You know, uh, the, yeah. the I guess they were stressed too much and they probably just didn't work anymore. Yeah. The flight crew's target speed of 280 to 290 knots and the use of speed flaps in the descent after separation indicated they did not consider the appropriate emergency descent checklist that states airspeed should be limited as much as possible when structural integrity is in doubt. So it kind of got a little mad at the crew there for going a little too fast. Yeah, but it does seem like whenever they slowed down, they lost control of the plane. So right. it's, they, I th it's... Yeah, I think yeah. they said once they got below 170 knots, they started losing control. But I can imagine they're also anxious. They're like, they're thinking, let's get to the airport as quick as we can. Yeah, I guess you could get mad at them, but they seemed like they did everything the best they could. And there were like so few injuries. And right. But again, you know, the airline industry safety is built yeah. on following checklists. So That's true. if the checklist isn't followed, that has to be pointed out. Uh, yeah. It did work out in this case, though. Uh, although Aloha Airlines operated according to the FAA operating certificate and operation specifications, the quality of Aloha Airlines maintenance and inspection program was deficient. You always hate to hear that word deficient. We've, I think we've mentioned that in other reports in the past when they say that uh, maintenance is deficient. Mm -hmm. There was sufficient information available to Aloha Airlines to alert it to the cracking problems associated with the deterioration of the lap joint bonds, and Aloha should have followed a maintenance program to detect and repair cracking before it reached critical condition. There are human factor issues associated with visual and non-destructive inspections, which can degrade inspector performance to the extent that theoretically detectable damage is overlooked. So they're saying humans make mistakes. Yeah. yeah if you're relying on humans to inspect stuff, they might not see it. Mm -hmm. Aloha Airlines management failed to recognize the human performance factors of inspection and to fully motivate and focus their inspector force toward the critical nature of lap joint inspection, corrosion control, and crack detection. However, reports of fleet-wide cracks received by the FAA after the accident indicate that a similar lack of critical attention to lap joint inspection and fatigue crack detection was an industry-wide deficiency. So they said Aloha Airlines at fault here for not recognizing this could be a problem, but the FAA also realizes this is 
potentially an industry-wide problem. Gotcha, yeah. Just Aloha just happens to be more susceptible to this because of the nature of their short flights. Right, and uh, the high cycles on their planes. The probable cause is as follows. The NTSB determines that the probable cause of this accident was the failure of Aloha Airlines' maintenance program to detect the presence of significant disbonding fatigue damage, which ultimately led to failure of the lap joint and the separation of the fuselage upper lobe. Contributing to the accident were the failure of Aloha Airlines management to supervise its maintenance force, the failure of the FAA to evaluate properly the Aloha Airlines maintenance program, and to assess the airline's inspection and quality control deficiencies, the failure of the FAA to require inspection of all lap joints when Boeing announced a desponding problem, and the lack of complete terminating action after the discovery of early production difficulties in cold bond lap joint, which resulted in low bond durability, corrosion, and premature fatigue cracking. The NTSB recommended that Aloha Airlines revise their maintenance program to recognize the high time, high cycles nature of the fleet operations and initiate maintenance inspection and overhaul concepts based on realistic and acceptable intervals. To initiate a corrosion prevention and control program designed to afford maximum protection from the effects of harsh operating environments. And revise and upgrade the technical division manpower and organization to provide necessary management, quality assurance, engineering, technical training, and production personnel to maintain a high level of airworthiness to the fleet. So just telling them to get better at their maintenance and inspection to yeah. take care of everything. How do you inspect the top of a plane? Like, because you have uh, like a forklift type thing? Well, I mean, at this point, they didn't necessarily have... They, they could have, if they'd been looking at the side, the passengers saw the crack on the yeah. side. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they should be looking, you know, during regular maintenance intervals, they should be looking at the top of the plane as well, either with like a scissor lift or you know, by taking it into a hangar. You know, there are ways to do it. Yeah. Just like, just make sure that you're actually doing that. And the NTSB also recommended that the FAA develop a model for a comprehensive corrosion control program to be included in each operator's approved maintenance program. They also recommended for there to be better structural fatigue testing for older aircraft or aircraft who have been through a lot of cycles and hours and just overall better attention to maintenance. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they, uh, you know, the NTSB told the FAA to also step up as well and, you know, make sure that they're policing these things and have programs in place for airlines uh, to follow. Uh, but that's it. That's Aloha Airlines 243, uh, a plane that lost its ceiling but still managed to uh, to fly with uh, minimal injuries and only uh, only one loss of life on it. Uh, an, an amazing outcome, mm-hmm. a testament to uh, to the crew involved. Yeah, but yeah, and uh, like I said, if you follow us on social on Twitter and Instagram at Black Box Down Pod, we'll post uh, some uh, some images so you can see what the plane looked like. I know when I'm talking about longitudinal cracks and yeah. <laughs> all of these things, <laughs> it's difficult to picture that in your head. So we'll save you some of that by posting some pictures on social media. Uh, also, I mentioned it earlier, but we started a l- new visual video mini series on roosterteeth.com. Um, this is it's for our first members, which is essentially our version of a Patreon. So if you enjoy the show and want to support us, then please consider checking it out. We'll have a link in the description, but it's where we go up in Flight Simulator and we try to recreate the situation of a disaster that we've covered and try and land the plane. Yeah. And uh, we do that with uh, with you, with myself and with uh, our producer, Dennis. Yeah. it's It really does change the way you think about these incidents because you, you're we're actually in the location, you see the environment, you're actually... A lot of times, the the amount of time that we're airborne is similar to what's actually happening 
in real life. Yeah, like we can talk about, you know, we say, oh, the plane was airborne for 30 minutes, you know, as they were trying to descend and land. You don't realize how long that is until you're actually yeah. sitting in the, on the simulator and be like, oh my God, we're still in the air. Yeah, it does change the way you think about these and just how, how time passes and, and the environment affects everything. How you're like scanning the ground, like where could we land? Yeah, and uh, as long as we're plugging black box down things, I feel like I would be... Not doing my job if I didn't also mention that we have a shirt available. If, uh, if, if, if videos aren't your thing and you'd rather support us by uh, buying a shirt, well, we've got a shirt for you. Yeah. <laughs> you just head over to uh, store.roosterteeth.com and uh, you can check it out there. Just do a search for Black Box Down and you'll see the shirt. I think it looks pretty cool personally. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll be back again next week with another incident. Uh, until then, make sure you share, like we said, share this podcast with someone, uh, share it with a friend, share it with family members. Uh, let them know. Uh, I, I think... Some people think that you know maybe this isn't a podcast for them. We try to make it as entertaining and engaging for as wide of an audience as possible. I think just about anybody can enjoy this. So give it a share. Give it a good rating. Send it to someone this time, uh, someone who has blonde hair. Okay, do that. Our random uh, suggestion of the week. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, we'll see you guys again next week. Bye.